John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 540.ps5506, certificate number 20913, The Gossamer Albatross. Brian, does it say does it feel any different over water? Yeah, it's a pretty definite interlinking between the water and the air. Albatross from Control. Be sure to follow us by looking a little bit out your right window that keeps you a little more behind us and definitely not in our wake. Clear. Yeah, Albatross, Roger that. Clear. You've been across the English Channel. I've been uh, under under the channel. No, that's not true. Did you take the channel? No, we took a boat. No, you wait. did take a boat. Why can't I remember? Which one, Ken? Did you take the channel or did you take a boat? Uh, yeah, I took the the ferry from Calais to the White Cliffs of Dover. This is so fake. This is so fake. <laughs> I, I protest. <laughs> <laughs> you beeped it out and are trying to make it seem like you know the answer. I had to. I couldn't remember if we took the train or not. I had yeah. to. I had to look it up. But we did, in fact, not take the channel. I've never taken the the train. But, but you, I've been on a boat. You took a ferry boat from Calais to Dover. It's surprisingly close. That's the closest point. And it's really, I don't even know. You probably know. It's, uh, what, 100 miles or less? Yeah, it's the its the closest point that you can take a boat. Actually, a cop de Grisnez that is, sticks out further. Is, is closer. But uh, but it's, you know, it's a point, not a uh, not a port. Hard to take a boat from there? Yeah, Folkestone, I think, might even be closer than Dover. But but Dover to Calais is the, uh, is the, is the boat ride. My main uh, memory is that getting to Dover, we were trying to take the train to London, and the, uh, the the cabbies were all insistent that they could get us there faster and faster than the train and and cheaper. And Liars. I showed them on the internet that it would be longer and more expensive, and they were like, "Yeah, that's a fair point." <laughs> <laughs> but in crossing the channel for the first time, uh, did you feel it was momentous? Are you someone who who uh, marks those events in in one's life the first no, time across I mean, the Mississippi that type of thing? I think if I was from one of those countries and I had never been to the other, if I was a, a Frenchman who had never been to the UK, or if I was a Briton who had never been to the continent, it would seem momentous. But having already been to both London and Paris via airplane, via airplane, taking the the um, ferry was just kind of a, a nice day out. You know, it didn't really feel like I had explored or accomplished anything. I'm like an angel who has been in the two points and now has to travel between all the intermediate points. It's interesting because crossing the English Channel is a 
is a symbolic achievement. A lot of um, a lot of sort of transportation milestones are marked by the first time you do a thing across the English Channel. I assume it's because it's such an attainable width. I mean, it's an impressive international boundary, but. Uh you know, it's, oh, the Strait of Dover is much narrower than I thought. Yeah. It's like less than a hundred miles for sure. Yeah, It's like 20 to 25 miles, I think where the ferry crosses. So, you know, if, if you're the first person trying to do X, you, you definitely start with the English Channel and then work your way up to the Atlantic. But also from a, within a European context, um, it's a big cultural divide. It is a cultural divide. And it was a thing that set England apart. And also, I mean, other than the Alps and I guess the steppes, uh, the the Russian. biggest the biggest uh, geographical thing you would need to overcome if you were I mean it's two and zero against Napoleon and Hitler just just like <laughs> right. just like the steps of Russia I guess <laughs> even so, the Spanish Armada couldn't uh, exactly it. exactly three and zero so it has a a, a, a symbolic significance uh, that that goes back um, to the Romans but it still remains like you say kind of a um, it would be one thing to to swim 25 miles. It's an entirely different thing to swim the English Channel. Right. 25 miles is probably, you know, Staten Island to Newark or something, you know? No, it's further f- <laughs> than Staten Island to Newark. You could you can throw a you can skip a rock from Staten Island to Newark. Oh, uh, is Newark right across? I was I was well, trying to, to New Jersey. I was trying to go a little bit diagonally, but I get maybe it would but you know, but yeah, you would not think of that as such an achievement. You'd be like, "Oh, what a waste of a Sunday." Yeah, it might be to swim all the way around Manhattan Island would be 25 yeah. miles. I mean, what is Manhattan? 14 miles long, something like that. That sounds right. Maybe, maybe, maybe more, but um, maybe that'd be lo- a longer swim. I think, arguably, a worse swim. <laughs> although, arguably, being the English Channel is very cold and can be very choppy. I'm always impressed about the people swimming it. You know. Yeah. Didn't we? Did we mention Gertrude Ederly on this we very did. program? We did not very long ago. But it, um, I, I'm the type of person that that does mark those symbolic events: the first time across the Mississippi, the first time. Over the Rockies, the first time to the top of you know whichever mountain. I remember the first time I went across the English Channel, feeling like it was. Uh, I mean, and maybe I felt felt like it was a world historical event. Were which, you swimming? Which, Did you cover yourself you know, in, in, in uh, on a boat. beef tallow and? Actually, I was on a hovercraft, ah, uh, the fast way, which was a popular way to go back in our time. And whilst on the hovercraft crossing English Channel, I passed two, uh, two like gaily attired gals from the UK wearing like uh, sort of old fashioned stewardess uniforms who invited me to take part in the Pepsi challenge. Wait, really? Is this a sex euphemism or this, no, uh, this was like 19. The, oh, they were the, literally doing the, the Pepsi 1980s, challenge. Like, Excuse me. Would you like to take the Pepsi challenge? Were they dressed in Pepsi colors? Yeah. And oh, I was like, wow. and I said to them, you know, in my like American, I had long hair at the time. and was like, listen, Let me tell you a little something about the Pepsi challenge. I'm going to be able to tell Pepsi from Coke. I'm an American. It's in our birthright. It's not a thing that I'm not going to be fooled. And they were like, right, well, here they are. Try them. Maybe we should save this for our show about the Pepsi challenge, which I'm sure we would do. Yeah, you're right. Okay. It's double blind, right? It's a, you didn't get to see. And I was like, "Uh, this is the Pepsi. I didn't even try the other one. I was like, this is the Pepsi. And they were like. Oh, you're right. It's so charming. Oh, it's not. It's not double blind. They know. Well, they know. 
Or no, I guess I mean I guess they lifted off the things and they were it's like got, it's got a it's got like a white shield. Yeah, I and then the I think ads. I probably should have said like, "What are you guys doing after the? You want to go? You want to go clubbing or what whatever? are you I mean, birds doing? <laughs> Do they just riding back and forth on the thing? I think uh, just doing the Pepsi challenge. I mean, I guess by by 1989 that was still a that was still we'd already had had and lost new Coke by then. What an odd place to put the Pepsi challenge right on the hover. Do you have to have it in international waters? <laughs> yeah, that might be it. Maybe they're it. avoiding all kinds of. <laughs> Every time they docked, they had to put a <laughs> put a lock and key over the top. Of it's it. like the riverboat gambling of Europe. Finally, we got to get out beyond the ten mile limit so we can do the Pepsi challenge. <laughs> but uh, going across the English Channel was a major milestone in uh, the development of aeronautics. I think. Probably to contemporary listeners of this program, to, to futurelings who are presentlings, of course, there are very few of those, given that this podcast is designed entirely for... Goes directly into the ground. ...people of the future. After every show. But every once in a while, you get a sense that the transmissions are getting out to, to people of our time. But our, um, We're beta testing. <laughs> in our own era, it may seem that we here on Omnibus, uh, you and I, now I'm talking about us as though we're a giant enterprise we here at omnibus at headquarters Om- omnitech we uh we talk about aviation quite a bit or it seems like we we're, we either have entries about it or refer to it fairly often but uh as true futurelings will know uh we're still in the very dawn of aviation powered flight is just a little over 100 years old and it's still um i think given the length of time that human beings were on the planet unable to fly, uh, I I don't think it's that unusual that we're still we still kind of marvel at it. It's still fairly magnificent. I wonder if every child always will. You know, if you're our age, you were very impressed by your first commercial flight. Uh, and I is is the experience of flight and the yearning for flight universal enough that even a hundred years hence, kids getting in the orbital shuttle will uh, will still be impressed? Well, I don't. I, you know, my daughter's first flight was when she was three months old, and mine, I wasn't much older. Uh, so you don't remember your first flight? I don't know. My parents, you know, we we went from Seattle to Alaska, back and forth, you know, several times a year. So my first flight happened pre-memory. You know, you can look at kids in an airport, and the ones that are old enough to know are excited to be on a plane. Well, it, it's funny about an airport. An airport is still a very exotic place. I mm-hmm. mean, there's there's nowhere else that you can go and and um, and just look up and on a single wall see Nairobi and Pittsburgh. But now they the don't two have great cities <laughs> of, the, of the world. Yes, do they still have that direct flight <laughs> between Nairobi and Pittsburgh? I don't know. It's not on the Seattle board. Uh, I just wish they would go. Tick, 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 yeah. tick, 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 Now that was the best. That was so exotic. Maybe that's going to make flight not seem cool anymore now that it's all screens, flat screen TVs. I mean, we keep th- we keep threatening with each new technology to make the world seem like a small place. Uh, flight was supposed to do it. And the internet and television were all supposed to make the world seem a small place. It still doesn't. Teleportation would probably do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. If you could just walk into a booth in Moscow and come out in Buenos Aires, I think that would finally do it. I mean, if you could do it routinely, especially. Supersonic flight was supposed to do it. My sense is that if you want the world to seem like a small place, you move to New York. Because there, the world does seem like a small place. Because no one ever... Because everybody goes to New York. And no one ever leaves. Everyone right. thinks that the world kind of ends at the... 
at the river. Also, if you want to go to Paris, it's only five hours. It's like basically the same amount of time it would take us to drive to Eugene. I mean, that is a big deal about living on the West Coast, that Europe seems kind of unattainable, and Asia's still far enough away to feel unattainable. It's all unattainable, huge. right? It's it's 14 hours to one place and 14 hours but if to you, another. But it's true that if you live in New York, you can get to Europe quicker than the West Coast. Yeah. You go to, the, you go to Europe, you have lunch, come home. Like Superman. It's infuriating. Superman could always just carry Lois for a dinner in Paris and then get back to Metropolis, and I would always think, come on. Come on. Come on. Well, the, the first flight across the English Channel, this is, we think a lot about the Wright brothers and their first flight in 1903. I really do think about it a lot. Because it was an, it was an American accomplishment. People were trying all around the world to accomplish that feat, and Europeans were, were tantalizingly close and had pioneered aviation, you know, balloon flight and, and glider flight. Uh, it was just that the Wrights got there first in that American way, and God bless them, USA, America. Thanks, everyone. Can't compete with a bike shop, can you, Europe? Imagine them just continent-wide of people throwing down their elegant headwear <laughs> and stomping on it when they heard about, Sacre bleu. about the Wright brothers. But it was uh, Louis Blairot, Blairois. You're looking at me like I'm supposed to know what you're saying. (laughs) Are you a Pepe Le Pew cartoon? Who was it? I am a Pepe Le Pew. (laughs) Uh, Louis was the first first to fly across the English Channel. And uh, there was a prize of a thousand pounds waiting for him. That was was six years after the Wrights flew in 1909, before they got a powered aircraft that could make that. So it's probably still just a plane of his own invention. He's he's building his own experimental plane, just like the Wrights were. He was, you know, he was a uh, an aviation pioneer and 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 actually like accomplished a great number of firsts. He's one of the heroes of aviation, but we're in, here in the United States only impressed with ourselves in this regard. You know, when you go look at a uh, look at a timeline of the the early days of space exploration. And it's just like, well, the Soviets beat it. Oh, oh, they got that one too. Oh, oh, they got that one too. And finally, it, the moon landing <laughs> was basically the moon landing was the first, uh, the first real accomplishment. But that's not how. But we to be fair, tell that story to be now. fair, nobody cares about the you know the fourth American on the moon either. That's like, true. You know, uh, the Wright brothers have something that Louis does not. But that whole like first first uh, person in space business. Yeah. You know, our little Mercury thing kind of went up, touched the atmosphere and came down. And they, you know, their first try, they went around the world. Pretty good. Um, but that first, you know, that first crossing of the English Channel by airplane, having done it, there were a lot of other like lesser firsts. But it really wasn't until the first crossing of the Atlantic uh, that we had another another moment that seemed like. Um, ticker tape worthy ticker tape worthy and then then the first solo crossing of the atlantic is the one that we maybe remember as one of the great events in aviation history yeah we should we should clarify for people who may misremember uh everybody forgets the the teams there were i think there had been something like 90 crossings of the atlantic before Lindbergh. yeah that's right his achievement was staying awake yeah that's exactly right i mean the crossing the atlantic had maybe not become mundane but certainly was uh a very achievable goal. It wasn't quite climbing Everest. Right. It was just, uh, it was just Lindbergh managed to, I think tie his steering wheel with his, with his belt 
long enough to catnap as he flew across. Something the, the previous people hadn't done because they had friends. Right. Lindbergh was just uh, very off-putting. He was, a, he was not. He was always talking about the Jews. Not and the greatest his, guy. His friends didn't like <laughs> that. That's not why he flew alone. But pretty. I mean, I and I think I think we traditionally think of the solo achievement as being uh, maybe the highest form, right? The first yeah. solo trip. By sailboat around the world, the first solo ascent of these, you know. But when you think about it, what are you romanticizing there? It's just staying awake. Yeah, well, staying awake and also, yeah, being friendless and <laughs> and, and gradually going insane. That's the American way. As a country, we are friendless and gradually going insane. <laughs> I mean, I I walked at at the age of twenty nine from Amsterdam to Istanbul first, by myself. First solo walk from Amsterdam well, to Istanbul. Probably not. Although the and there there have been books written by people that have gone on long walks. I've never read an account of someone going specifically from Amsterdam to Istanbul, but it seems like the type of thing that some dumb college student did. It's not, 20, it's not arbitrary. 20 times before. It's, I it's it. kind of river basin related, right? Your walk? Well, no, it's, it's just compass heading. Um, you just set your, set your compass at Sorry, south you, by southeast. and You weren't particularly following the rhine to the danube or no anything. Okay. but you know you could make a case that uh, amsterdam was the the northwestern corner of europe and istanbul the southeastern corner sure and that was the case i made made if, it if scandinavia doesn't exist but you know denmark's around the corner right up and over and uh, and Greece is down and Spain's you know. further west, but it's right. not as far north. That's Scandinavia's right. further north, but it's not as far west. What's a what's what a walker do? to do? I mean, you. I think there are people that cross from that probably have walked from the like Spain to Danzig or something, or Saint Petersburg. But I don't care about them. The opposite way. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Greece hangs down like an udder, and yeah. and Denmark's a hat, and. and and Britain's not even on the continent. Right, and Scandinavia isn't either. That's why they say we're going to the continent. Right. So anyway, I, I hold the record. But all, but <laughs> I feel like if I'd done that walk with a partner, it would be one-third as remarkable personally for me just because the company seems to be a thing that mitigates the pain and suffering. Yeah, you're not uh, experiencing you and the task anymore. Right. It's mostly you and the other person. Right. The it, task is secondary to both. People would, a instead of asking, um, I mean, most people when they find out I've done that don't have anything to ask. They just go, huh. Well, really? anyway, let's go, you know, like, what do you want to eat? Like, I, I think of a hundred questions. There's not a lot of curiosity about it. And I think it's because the scale of it is just outside of what anybody really wants to they probably don't believe you, know. and they don't want to say that's a long, that's too long a walk. You're a liar. But it's such a dumb thing to lie about. Like, what, if you're going to lie about being doing something, that's what why. A, that's what you're so clever about. You've, stupid you've, walk. You've chosen something very plausible. But if you did it with someone else, the question would be, "What did you guys talk about?" <laughs> <laughs> that's all anybody would. Do you guys have McDonald's a yeah. lot? Huh? You guys? So did were you guys having sex? <laughs> because that's a long time to spend with somebody. Um, but after the. After the crossing of the uh, the Atlantic, and then we had we had several. I mean, there are all kinds of aviation um, records that you that we'll probably talk about in some episode of the Omnibus at one point or another. You're, around the world flight, you're kind of an aviation nerd. I would I, not be surprised. I like it, and I and I do, and I do still believe that. Although in in some ways, a powered flight or or not or I mean any kind of flight, unpowered flight too. Although those, it's easy to imagine that those are mundane, um, 
in our in our current world, I still think it's a it is a, a like a singular achievement in every single aviation every every way in which we push the boundaries of human flight we it's it's a this is an era where we're it it will be regarded by futurelings as a kind of golden age well it seems like the precursor to what clearly our our next barrier is i would say the final frontier hmm, go on which is which is space you know bum, 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 bum. it already has its own song <laughs> that's the theme that's the theme song of space yes <laughs> every time you think of space that place every time you open the door to space <laughs> ba, 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 da, da, it, it's like space's ringtone <laughs> but yeah like like uh, the the aviation century is the precursor to that in a way that we don't think of you know, the information explosion, the communications explosion as, as relating to it. It goes back to the question that I, that I asked my dad and his greatest generation cronies. Um, Which is, where's the, the remote? I was, I said, why did you guys not let, why did you guys not listen to Hitler? Is that what you always ask? Them? No, I didn't. <laughs> no, what I said was in you, you lived through the 20th century Uh, The first half of which saw us go from uh, airplanes made out of balsa wood and tissue paper to men walking on the moon. Were they like, this is more of a comment than a question. (laughs) (laughs) No. And then I said the second half of which, I mean, starting after the moon landing, we have not really accomplished any great feats. It's all been information age it's all been entertainment it's all been communication and also the extension of rights and sure, social so, advances. social uh, social what uh, about uh, upc codes it's pretty yeah, good exactly right I buying, mean, that's the bu- level buying gum is a lot faster that's the, the level of high five that we have I mean, what what we've what we've experienced in the second half of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st is 100 sort of a the, the disappointment no, no, no. The extension of the franchise to everyone, right? It's not just voting rights, right. but now, know. now people of uh, color can go to space. And I think that my, I think when you ask my mom that question, she would say, uh, "All the powered flight in the world was not as earth-shattering or, or as earth-altering as the idea that a little." a brown girl and a little white girl could be best friends. Or for your mom, the fact that she could have a job, you know? like Well, her own credit card. Yeah, I mean, exactly. When, when she divorced my dad, uh, she said that most of the, most of her contemporaries couldn't, they didn't, they couldn't get a credit card without their husband signing for it. Cause the and, diners club is dicks. Yeah. They're, they're just a-holes. So for, for, for a, a woman to leave her husband in 1971 meant that, if he didn't co-sign on a loan uh, on a credit card for her or a loan or a bank account even kept a lot of marriages together it sure i bet did. <laughs> <laughs> but there are still so many frontiers yeah now i've got you saying it to uh for us still to break and i think one of the things about aviation that uh that's yet to happen is now now we need to now aviation needs to turn the corner and become less loud less inconvenient Less polluting. More part of the fabric of life, right? Yeah. uh, Aviation still is a messy, industrial, dirty... Do you feel guilty when you fly? I feel guilty. Exclusive and privileged thing. 
And the, 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 the less exclusive it becomes, the more intolerable it becomes, <laughs> right. right? I mean, it's, What should I feel more guilty about? <laughs> it's now just like, it's like riding in the bilge of a, of a ship. I'm glad you can all afford this flight now, but on the other hand, I have to sit by you. That's, yeah. that's what I'm often thinking. I mean, or, or, or when I walk through the airport, I definitely feel like, do you really need to be on, on this flight? I mean, where are you going really? Are you just going back to see Nana? Because you could write her a letter. And then I slip off my shoes and you say, no, no Ken, keep your come shoes on. on. Stop it. You're wearing your, your three-piece suit. Put your white gloves back on. <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. I think what we're going to see in the next uh, 50 to 100 years is that not only is aviation going to become become more democratic, but we're watching all industrial processes begin to take into account the, the um, environmental costs. Cost. Yeah. And, uh, and as we take that into account, it's not like we're not going to continue to want to fly. We're just going to have to find different ways of doing it. And not just this kind of phony baloney offset stuff we're doing today. Right. Uh, I'm sure a, most jumbo jets use more fuel in a single flight than we put in our cars in two years. I mean, it's in, it's insane. The amount of pollution, the amount of waste that every single flight uh, adds to the world. Not to mention the chemtrails. Well, that'll be a future entry in the omnibus. Cause I have some insider information there, but you know, the, 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 uh, the airplane wars that just happened recently between Airbus and Boeing, when um, they were each developing their, their latest, uh, their latest platform. And, Airbus chose Airbus believed that the the future of aviation was going to be in the um the efficiency of getting the most people on an airplane that you could fit on an airplane. So the Have you seen the scare pictures of the of the air, the uh Dreamliner with the two rows of seats like you've got people sitting above your head on a Dreamliner? Or on an, it works on any plane. Get rid of the overhead compartments. Put a second row put of second seats row. up there. That's so it's right. like an amusement park ride when, soaring over Seattle. When Airbus started to work on their next platform, uh, which ended up being the A380, which is a double-decker aircraft, um, the idea was, let's see how many people we can get on this airplane. And the efficiency of that will, be appeal, will appeal to air, airlines because you can put, you know, what? twice as many people or, or close to twice as many people. Boeing went the opposite direction with the 787, which was to make an aircraft that was lighter and more fuel efficient to fly. 
it's uh, it's some kind of carbon polymer thing instead of aluminum, right? That's right. And um, and it was it was really a race between the two airlines to see which which model was going to be the one that that or I'm sorry, the it was a race between the aircraft manufacturers to see which model was going to appeal to airlines. And what they couldn't have, uh, what you can't anticipate in the short term is that fuel prices changed and became a major factor in in what kind of platform an airline was uh, was a. I'm sorry, what kind of platform appealed to the airlines? Boeing lucked out, and Boeing did luck out, uh, even though the, their <laughs> even though theirs seventy seven program was total disaster. Uh, it, the fuel costs made the difference, but we. We have to start thinking in terms of how t- how to um, how to continue to have air travel be so ubiquitous and not as polluting, and it's not a new idea. Uh, it goes all the way back to the to the dawn of flight, and in fact, before even powered flight. I'm, think, I'm were, thinking of Leonardo da Vinci here. Like, are you going to go back that far? You have to go all that way back. The original idea of powered flight you know, originated a long time before we had a five horsepower gasoline motor. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the original idea was always a, an ornithopter, right? A human built machine that flapped its wings. Ornithopters like flap, right? Because, they flap. Because somebody like Leonardo, you, the only example of flight he would see would be birds and bats. That's yeah. clearly the way to get aloft. Yeah. You got to flap. You got to flap. And so, so many early uh, airplane designs all the way into, well into the late 19th century were ornithopters uh, where you had pedals and you had uh, handles and some combination of pushing and pulling and flapping I just don't think it's going to take off. I mean, like if you've ever been in one of those little boats on a lake where you have to pedal, do you know these kind of like you realize you're exhausted in like 30 seconds. The kids are bored. It's a lot of work. You're going to have to. And that's a boat. Like imagine if you had to propel that thing through the air. And, And why it's so fascinating to explore what birds do and how birds wings work. I mean, we we're we still are astonished by. The composition and design of feathers and wings, because it's an integrated system that it, that's bafflingly complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these the bones of a wing of a bird's pardon me of a bird's wing or a or the composition of a feather. There's so much hollow structure there. So much of a feather is air, um, and to to duplicate that with wood and string and tissue paper, uh, you, you're never going to overcome a thrust to weight ratio problem. You've, it's always going to be too heavy, given what you can do with a, you know, with a handmade wing. Is that true? Like in practice, ornithopters just don't work. Well, no. I mean, jumping ahead in 2010, a guy by the name of Ted Reichert uh, from the University of Toronto built a working ornithopter human powered yeah so so um materials science is getting us to a place where you can build a thing so light that human you know human wing flapping can actually get it airborne why don't they build the whole plane out of the bird Right, just take a bunch of birds, make the, it out, make the, it out of bird tissue. The bird was in the was downstairs this entire time, <laughs> but um. But human-powered flight, which is to say uh, flight that 
originated on the ground unassisted. It got into the air under its own power rather than dropping it off a cliff or, uh, or catapulting it into the air. I mean, gliders have been people, yeah, people were building glider? gliders all through the 19th century, pretty successful gliders, but, but they had to start at the top of a and, cliff. That's or something. right. And you can, you can huck a glider pretty easily from with a, with no, a you, giant rubber band. You can eat a glider. Let me update your slang. <laughs> Nobody hucks anymore. They eat. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Trust me. It's like hucking, but. Uh, oh, okay. But it's yeeting. Yeah. Oh, okay. You can yeet a glider, <laughs> uh, but you can't, but, but you, you can't, can't make eat a drink. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, like to me, the dream is still a human powered flight. Even as somebody who flies commercial, you know, every month of my life, uh, that does not fulfill the romance in my head of the skies. Right. Like I would still like to be in a meadow and, and jump aloft in yeah. whatever kind of contraption makes that possible. That be- has not gone away for me. Being in an airplane feels pretty cheap and more and more cheap all the time. It's um, just in a room that, a, a bad room. Super noisy, super stinky. That that can turn that can turn Seattle into Burbank. And I'm glad it can do that because I don't want to be in a, a car-shaped room that turns Seattle into Burbank after 15 hours, <laughs> but it's not, to me, it's not flight in any real way, even if you sit by the window. Well, this has been true since the very beginning. I mean, after, um, after Blairois flew across the English channel, I mean, the work had already commenced on, um, on employing new technologies, not ornithopter style, but how do we get enough energy, uh, directed toward, propeller power. Yeah. The no flap movement. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I've seen, I've seen their subreddit. And how do we lighten aircraft to the point that we can, we can get them aloft in this way. And, and, and these early, uh, these early airplanes, the, the motors on them were, were very small. Put, and put, put, and put, so put. we were all, I mean, designers were already trying to reduce weight as much as they could. The first truly human powered airplane and you've probably seen newsreel footage of it was the Gearhart cycle plane yeah. and it was uh he designed it to be seven wings high it was it stood it was 15 feet tall because it had seven different air of what would that airfoils. be it's not a biplane or a triplane it's a heptaplane it's a heptaplane. <laughs> wow uh it was it, it was clear to everybody that there needed to be um, there needed to be an awful lot of 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 surface area, wing surface area, and these early designs tried to stack wings on top of one another because they didn't have the they didn't have the structural material strength to make to a very long wing. Uh, the right. wing couldn't support its own weight, and so they stacked them as an attempt to get you know enough lift. It is uh, funny to see this pl- this Gerhard plane. Yeah, I encourage everyone to look at this thing. It looks like it's it's like a woman wearing an outrageous hat and sitting in front of you at the movies in in 1946. <laughs> the Gerhard cycle plane managed to uh, to get aloft, and it flew for 20 feet. Mm. So it was like, you know, 20 feet is just enough that you can go. 20 feet means you could do it as a stage act. <laughs> you yeah, know, like I mean, it's it, not, that's not even an evil can evil type thing. I don't know what the long jump record is. <laughs> let's, see, let's see. Let's see what the long jump record is here. That seems like something. Uh, the long jump record is 29 feet, four inches. 
So so yeah, you could you could uh, you could do that, or you could build a, a seven story airplane and and pedal real and hard. Do, do it twice. Um, in uh, th- this has always been an engineering challenge too, like a thought experiment for people in the engineering sciences who are like, I know, I mean, we're trying to, we're trying to solve some of these theoretical problems. And by doing so, we're going to solve global problems or we're going to build a better mousetrap. Uh, and, and human powered flight has always kind of functioned as that sort of experiment in the, in the early twenties, there was a little spate of people kind of throwing frogs against the wall to see what stuck. In the mid '30s, um, there was uh, this sort of Rome-Berlin axis. Uh, Hitler and Mussolini were forging a relationship, and part of it part was, of it was human-powered aircraft. In a way, like the the scientific community of both nations tried to uh, tried to to form an alliance or to say like, oh, it, the axis powers have all this technological strength, all this intellectual strength. We've got a science fair, bitches. And so there was a little bit of like a Rome-Berlin challenge. The the Frankfurt Polytechnic Society sort of put out this challenge like human-powered flight. And an American uh, by the name of Bossy. What if it was Jesse Owens? But Jesse Owens but brought Jesse the Owens, best plane and beat them he all. He did a long jump <laughs> that beat. Uh, Ania Bossy was an, was an Italian who actually was a naturalized American citizen. But he went back to try and claim this, uh, this, it, this Italian prize for human-powered aviation, and he designed an airplane called the Pedaliante. Hey, the Pedaliante. I hey. love a good bowl of Pedaliante with uh, Alfredo sauce. All of the Anti-Defamation League people right now are writing us strongly word letters. Strongly worded letters. Just because our names end in a vowel does not mean that we can be the butt of your jokes. And you are absolutely, absolutamente right. Correcto, <laughs> Italianos. Molto bene. Now, Bazzi's Pedaliante actually flew for a, a, a kilometer. Ooh. But it was launched with a catapult. With a big rubber band, basically. And so it be, it. The technology at this point had sort of evolved to the point that you could human powered flight was possible if it had an assist. I mean, once once, once you get started, once like you, get started, it, you can, can you could pedal your little heart out. Yeah, I mean, well, take off is the hard part, and that's exactly the problem. I mean, in order to be the pilot of one of these, you have to meet a fairly strict regimen or a fairly strict set of criteria you have to be light you have to weigh about 100 pounds and you have to have lance strong. armstrong's uh uh doping doctor yeah you have to you, you're you have to have a good heart and good strong legs uh in order to keep because it, you can't pedal indefinitely right you can't take your shoes off on one of these flights tell is you this, what? is this why you're into human powered aircraft kind of <laughs> i support them uh in 1934 as part of this sort of rome berlin uh uh, Axis kind of competition. Engelbert Zaschka flew his little human-powered airplane uh, twenty whole meters under human power, self-sort-of-launched. Did you say twenty meters? Twenty meters, but but got off the ground on his own, no, not a catapult. No catapult. Good at job the, at Tempelhof. Engelbert Zaschka. Oh, I've That's been. Right. To, I was riding bikes at Tempelhof uh, just last summer. We did not take off. 
but uh, maybe but we should have flopped more. That's pretty. It's interesting airport. Got a lot of interesting history. Amazing history off. and yeah. a great place to ride bikes and look at birds now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's how they do it. <laughs> anyway, then uh, after the war, there was kind of a long period where human-powered flight maybe was in the shadow of supersonic flight and a lot of the other advances. Sure, the jet age makes it look pretty dopey. Right. But uh, by the... You know, by the early 60s, it was, again, sort of recognized as as a great experimental platform for materials sciences and for, um, for engineering challenges. I mean, this was an era when DuPont started to manufacture these kind of amazing new materials of mylar, and there was now carbon fiber technology. Thing, you know, uh, part of the space program was that it— it uh, pushed the boundaries of all these different new materials that were lightweight and strong. Things that didn't exist. Right. Things that don't exist if DuPont doesn't exist. That's right. Well, du- better living through chemicals. Thank du- you, DuPont. DuPont. Uh, in November of 1961, there was a, a, a little like a little burst of activity in this field. Derek Pigeot from Southampton University flew a human-powered aircraft 650 meters peddling his fool heart out. And only a week later, uh, the de Havilland company had a little like employee co-ed soccer team, except instead of co-ed soccer, they were trying to build, use de Havilland technology to build a a lighter than aircraft or a human powered craft rather. You just have to stay after work and do this. So, well, but it was fun, you know, it was better than being on the darts league or whatever. A week after Derek Peugeot flew his um, his little aircraft, I don't mean to diminish it by saying it was little, because they're you know they're fairly big. <laughs> uh, the uh, the De Havilland people uh, flew their Hatfield Puffin nine hundred and eight meters. I think I see the problem. People are choosing the least aerodynamic birds to name these things after. Right. The Puffin. The Puffin. The Puffin looks like it can barely get aloft in you know real life. Uh, and that's kind of the problem, right? But, but they flew they flew 900 meters in the Puffin in 61, and that record lasted for for 10 years. Uh, throughout the entire rest of the 60s, nobody could could manage a flight that far. The de Havilland ostrich never even got off the ground. Well, that's, I mean, a lot of these airplanes have, uh, I mean, there are... You can see we're chasing birds. Yeah. You know, we're just jealous. They look so happy and carefree. And we're wondering how come with our amazing Teflon and better living through chemistry, we can't just do what the birdies do. We are. We're chasing birds. It's precisely right. And um, and it's uh, and there's a lot of recognition that we're maybe working against some kind of some four minute mile. Yeah. Which is to say, a human being can only be so light. Materials can only be so light. Humans need to be stronger in order to, uh, 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 you know, to generate enough thrust. But what right? are the advances in then efficiency? I mean, like, just how much thrust can you get out of a human body? That's right. And, and the, one of the key elements in this is um, is what's what's called the aspect ratio of a wing, which is to say that the 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 ratio between the span of the wing and the cord of the wing, which is the what the, is called front to back, front to back, and sort of the the, the arch, the, the arch of it, the aerodynamic stretch of it. The the greater the aspect ratio, the more uh, 
the more sort of lift a wing can create. So, you know, if it's if a wing is short and wide, it creates less uh, quite a bit less. That's why most airplanes than, do not have square wings that are as right that are as <laughs> long as they are wide. But the longer you make a wing, the longer it's and he- thinner, heavier at the end, heavier and also just structurally, it has more to support wobbly. its own its own yeah. weight. And I think as as we've uh, watched this technology develop, you start to see these wings that. It's built into the wing that in the it, when in flight the wing flexes like uh, parabolically almost because upward upward, upward huh. um, because the you know the structure of the wing then becomes a kind of it, it sort of settles into a, a a state of stability. I see it sags into a as it sags a more horizontal wing right, um, and you can see this like in the the U two. Aircraft was was one of the early American high altitude, uh, long distance endurance airplanes that was used as a spy, spy airplane. Plane, yeah. But it was a spy airplane that wasn't it wasn't trying to go the fastest. It was trying to go the highest and stay up the longest. And it was built according to this premise that you know a, a very high aspect ratio wing was going to be the solution. That was that. That was difficult to do. It, w- even using mylar and carbon fiber to build an airplane that you could keep aloft with a with a bicycle uh, chain. Mm-hmm. And bicycle power seemed to be the preferred power source. I mean, we're, we're we've evolved away from ornithopters. Nobody's flapping. My legs are stronger than my arms. That's right. And you can't you can't pedal with your arms. You can't run on a treadmill. I mean, there. There's a limited number of ways. Imagine I mean, a big elliptical. <laughs> you're, 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 you're bobbing through the air on a. You can't just like eat a bunch of beans and power it with methane. Like you, there's only so many ways we can use our strength to drive a machine. Mm-hmm. And pedaling is. I'm imagining a rowing machine. Just some guy just going through the air like forward, forward. A little bit back, a little bit forward, a little bit back. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com start so anyway it was not until 1972 that uh that the next well that the that the hatfield puffins Record was beaten. Remind me what it is. We're up to. We're, we're, we were at 900 meters. By 1972, an airplane uh, called the Jupiter made it a thousand meters. Uh, in 1977, the Japanese, uh, a, a group of Japanese, came out with uh, the Stork, which kind of we're going to run out of birds. Beat the, end beat the hundred meter record. Now, some of this was driven um, 
by a, a British industrialist by the name of Kramer, who in 1959 set a um, set a contest. He said that he would pay five thousand pounds. Ooh, I love these. To the first team that could build a a, a human powered craft that t- could negotiate a figure eight, um, a figure eight course that was you know a, a, a certain sort of demarcated distance. So it has to steer. It's not just a distance. That's record. right. That's right. It's not just a it's not just a glider you get it up and you try and make uh, get as far as you can. It has to be maneuverable and that adds a lot of weight to the question. I love when rich guys do this by the way. I think you and I should pool our money and cuz then you you know you couldn't invent anything, but because you awarded the prize you feel like That's right. your name is forever attached to the achievement. And the Kramer prize was was also, you know, a little nationalistic. He wanted it to be a British company. Mm-hmm. And so the um, the the prize went unclaimed, unfortunately, from 1959 all the way through the 60s. Uh, here was this 5,000-pound prize for Maybe the first British small. company. And it was too small. 5,000 pounds. I mean, even in the 50s, that was more money, but still. So in, 19, in 1973, he, he uh, expanded the prize. It was now 50,000 pounds, and it was open to all comers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really sparked a kind of, uh, you know, renaissance of people attempting to build. A, uh, I'm picturing a bunch of just weird airships, like yeah. zooming through the air, like uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. And there were there were quite a few, um, quite a few attempts that got you know that got a plane up in the air and they and they made the first turn but the second one they they grabbed a wingtip and it crashed yeah yeah the egret the cormorant the <laughs> petrel i got it but uh, a man an american by the name of dr paul mccready who'd been he What's was he a doctor of he's a doctor an aeronautical oh, scientist not a not a dermatologist no no right, right he's not a doctor of psychology doctor of critics i've got this pain right here he was he was one of these kids that uh that we i think all would recognize he was uh, he was born in the 20s he he was a sort of myopic and unathletic kid that was really into model rocketry and hmm. uh balsa wood airplanes and he found in that a love of um aeronautics he joined the navy in world war ii i don't think he went through flight training, but didn't make it into the war. So very similar to my uncle, who also was in the Navy and, and the war ended before his flight training ended. Uh, my uncle went to Yale on a scholarship, and so did Dr. McCready. They were contemporaries there. Did your uncle become an engineer as well? He or? did not, oh, no. Okay. Um, but I, but they were they – were, I, I, I haven't asked him yet, but, but it's possible my uncle knew him. Uh, and then he went on to get a PhD in aeronautical design and continued to keep keep his hand in. And he had a lot of um, he was a pioneer in cloud seeding. Uh, you well, know, that, cre- should, that should be an omnibus. Yeah, I know creating rain through cloud seeding. We'll talk about Paul McCready uh, another time in a future omnibus. He'll be back. Cross reference. But it was uh, it was McCready that finally won the first Kramer Prize with his uh, his airplane, the Gossamer Condor. I like that the planes are finally starting to sound like sex moves. Right? Uh, but, oh, yeah. That's what I, when you were Gossamer like, we're doing Condor. the Gossamer Albatross, I was like, ooh. <laughs> that that's like, like a, one of those fancy uh, yeah. fancy condoms in the machine. It requires a, it requires a swing from your living room <laughs> ceiling. Uh, and the Gossamer Condor flew, uh, flew this, this uh, figure eight course uh, 
in a, in a seven minute time and won the uh, won the the Kramer Prize. And so Kramer, in the in the myopic fashion of all Britons, <laughs> all really <laughs> said all of them said, well, the natural next prize is who can fly across the English Channel in a human powered aircraft, and he extended his prize then to a hundred thousand pounds. Now this is real money. What, um, what, we're in what the mid seventies here. This is yeah, sort of toward the toward the late seventies. The Gossamer Condor, uh, I think, made its flight in seventy seven, and then the uh, then the prize bumped up, and uh, McCready had had an edge. Hard hard at work, he kind of expanded the Condor, made a uh, made improvements on it, and on. Uh, on a calm day in June in 1979, um, uh, like a competitive bicyclist by the name of Brian Allen. So these are still pedal powered. Nobody's improved pedals, on that. Pedals, pedals, pedals. Uh, and the, the pedals all the way down. The craft is, you know, is constructed largely out of mylar and plastic tubing. Um, hollow, hollow bones like a bird. Hollow bones like a bird. I assume they've chosen the albatross and the condor. Those are the, the two of the three birds in the world with the widest wingspan. That's right. Although they are known as soaring birds, and uh, this this thing can't this soar. thing isn't really soaring. It's really str- It's like <laughs> struggling. But yeah, the effortlessness of of this pursuit is kind of belied by watching anybody do it. I'm guessing. Well, I mean, like watching anyone ride a bicycle, like a road bike, competitively. It does have an elegance. But it's like watching somebody ride a bike uphill where you're like, good for you, that poor man. Yeah. I, your, your thighs must be killing you. I'm, I'm glad I'm in my car. Well, and it does not seem fun to imagine Brian Allen doing this because they, they, they knew he could. Uh, they tested it enough that they understood that this was the, – the, the, that he could generate that much energy – for that amount of time, he's, and the plane—they're lighting parts of him on fire to see if he's got that kind of uh, caloric output. Yeah, the plane did have the lift required, so it was just a question: Can it happen now, today? It's Performance—it's like a, an athlete on any given Sunday. And so he heads out across the English Channel, and um, what happens if he crashes? By the way, well, there's I mean, a boat uh, chasing him. Okay, right. Um, he gets out there, and there's a little bit of a headwind that they didn't anticipate. It starts to take longer than they thought. Ooh, a headwind. I mean, that'll that, that'll throw off your math. Really throw off your math. By like a factor. I mean, if you've ever just flown across the country, you realize you can get in. You can lose an hour. An hour later, yeah. yeah. Uh, Do you know how high these people are going? Well, yeah. Uh, he's about five feet off the water. <laughs> so... <laughs> He's really slipped the surly bonds of earth. <laughs> if you're, if you're like um, Peter Dinklage, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, the the um, the consequences of failure are right there, <laughs> right? right? You're, you're. Uh, I don't know what the scariest uh, marine life in the English Channel is, but they're circling, <laughs> <laughs> and they're just French swimmers. That that's the <laughs> yeah, real danger. It's people swimming back and forth, like laughing at you, going faster than you. But at that point, his radio failed. So Ooh. he could no longer talk to his chase boat or his handlers. He could only like wave at them. And it's, you know, you can't really take your hand off the, I mean, it's not like you're steering, but you, you know, you're <laughs> hard handlebars? <laughs> Yeah, there's handlebars. Is he signaling to oh, turn left? Sure. Uh, and then because it was taking longer than they expected, he ran out of water. Oh. And, 
you know, he's using so much energy that to run out of water and become dehydrated is a real, you know, like, well, you'll, you'll experience muscle cramps, right? You, you'll lose, you'll lose fast. Couldn't Mean Joe Green throw him a Coke or something? Well, what ended couldn't, up happening- Couldn't some lady on a ferry toss him a Pepsi? <laughs> his support team was like, he's not going to make it. And they were, uh, they were prepared to throw him a rope, basically, and tow him to the other side. I assume that disqualifies them for the prize. Yes, unfortunately. But they didn't have a radio- and so they were trying to like signal him like it's first, over. first word, second syllable, <laughs> it's a lasso, it's a cable, what are you doing? But so what he did was he didn't want to quit and he increased his altitude from five feet to ten feet and found some calmer air. Oh wow. And uh and made it across the English Channel twenty two miles in two hours and forty nine minutes. <gasps> At an average speed of 18 miles an hour. I'm guessing he could not have gone much further. Like, he must have just been so happy to make sandbar at the end. He was. He uh, he was happy, and I remember the event. I mean, it was— Oh, uh, this got big coverage. It was front-page news. We had finally—we'd um, finally accomplished this insurmountable task that mankind had wanted from the dawn— pedal across the English Channel. In humiliating fashion. <laughs> In a giant plastic bag. But it did set in motion a whole new universe of possibility, and it made uh, it made the hero of our story, Dr. Paul McCready, a very, very popular guy in these aviation circles. Right? He had done a thing that that he he'd easily done a thing that seemed impossible only a few years before. I wonder if he was a bit of a celebrity. I wonder if he's on the college speaking circuit. Well, he was, but a kind of celebrity unlike the sort that uh, that you might uh, maybe get to see right away because he, um, he was extremely attractive to unnamed American government agencies. Oh, because this is early drone stuff, right? And they said, wow, this is really cool. Would you like to come work with us on some other projects? Like, for instance, how high could you make one of these fly if it didn't have all these other... So he had the men in black showing up. He did. And in fact, uh, he became, uh, he was part of a, uh, of a, of a um, working group that worked out of Groom Lake. Uh, he went immediately then to Area 51 and worked <laughs> uh, worked on a uh, high-altitude soaring project. How do you make a lighter, a super light craft like this that could use solar power or battery power to stay aloft for days at a time, way, way high up in the atmosphere? What if we made a wing with an aspect ratio that was mind-bogglingly high. How how long a wing can we make? How light can we make this craft? Could God create a wing so, so long, long that he couldn't he couldn't ground it? Right. <laughs> um, the next Gossamer plane to fly was in 1979. Uh, the it's, Gossamer, it's gonna be like a, it's gonna be like the Gossamer Killhawk. It or was something. the Gossamer Penguin. Oh, that doesn't sound. I thought it was going to be like a mean kind of a no, Top Gun name. Not real. This is, I think, just prior to getting to Groom Laking. I see. His next thing was the solar powered airplane. Penguins and, can't fly. Is that the point? Uh, well, but this one did. 
flew flew <laughs> with with a combination of solar power and battery. He's power. out of birds, basically. They realized at this point that the best pilots for these craft were women, because huh. the strength to weight ratio uh, could be a lot higher. You know, you could take a hundred pound uh, female athlete, and she could generate the 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 energy like an uh, like an amount of energy sort of disproportionate to her weight. It's like putting jockeys on. On horses. Right. You've got to have a very specific build. So Janice Brown flew the Gossamer Penguin, and that evolved, the Gossamer Penguin evolved into uh, the Solar Challenger, which was uh, the airplane that really kicked off McCready's career with NASA. And the Solar Challenger was the first solar-powered airplane to fly across the English Channel in 1981. I mean, that's the frontier I remember as a kid is, you know, Burt Rattan and uh, Chuck Yeager's daughter doing these kind of round-the-world trips on these solar gliders. Uh, Like, I think I'm a little too young to remember the Gossamer era, but it seems like this must have followed right on its heels. It did. And and when he had, uh, when McCready had NASA dollars, then he started to build... That's an internal currency. You can only use it now. <laughs> you can buy Tang at the company store. His company, which was called Aerovironment. Ooh, I like it. That's smart branding. Yeah, Aerovironment. Uh, actually, I don't like it. The more I say it, it's uh, it's kind of a nightmare. It's Aer- a little... Aerovironment. 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 Um, he started working with Lockheed and with the Pentagon to, uh, to work on a lot of different sort of new drone technologies um and across a large spectrum of different platforms he was mccready was instrumental in that sort of solar powered car race that happens down in in australia i've never heard of that the uh, have you not no i've is is it in a mad max movie it sounds like it is (laughs) no uh in the in the mid 80s there was a similar sort of um like competition yeah uh, and it became another sort of venue for engineering testing. MIT always has a car and General Motors. Uh, General Motors actually sort of developed their whole electric car program out of the out of the um, there was a car called the Sun Racer. Um, they just must have big roofs. But the problem with the Sun Racer is it's spelled S-U-N-R-A-Y-C-E-R. So it's Ray. Sun rays, sir. I get it now. It's pretty bad. It starts with Sun Ra. That's nice. Sun Ra. The Sun Ra Yeaser. <laughs> uh, but so our, our um, McCready had a hand in all of these uh, and also was was developing those little hand-launched uh, yeah, drones. Airplanes. No, hand, hand-launched oh, little you know UAVs yeah. to, to use on the battlefield. But his... His crowning achievements were a, a series of airplanes, the the Pathfinder, and then later the Centurion, and ultimately the Helios, which were um, part of the Environmental Research Aircraft and uh, hmm, and Sensor Technology sort of. I'm sure the the ERAST. Yeah, the ERAST. Oh, is that what you say? No, that's what I just said. <laughs> it's like named for Erastus. But the the ERAST program was designed to try and build solar-powered airplanes that could just sort of stay perpetually aloft and and stay perpetually aloft at 100,000 feet. That seems like it would be hard to get on and off of them. 
almost impossibly impossible to get on and off of them. But what they what they end up being is um, they oh, like weather stuff. Well, no, they're effectively satellites. Yeah. So rather than the incredible expense and pollution of of launching a rocket to get a, huh. a communication satellite in the air, you can launch one of these these giant. Um, you know, they have uh, they're they're made up of segments. Each segment is forty one feet long, and you can keep grafting these segments together until oh, you can got, keep docking them up in the sky. Yeah, well, no, I think that you still build them on the ground. Oh, okay. Although that's a great idea. That's what I want. Uh, each forty one foot segment, you can put as mu- as many as six of them together. They'll have dip- between ten and fourteen separate motors, and they're way above the clouds, so solar power is continuous. That's right, and solar power doesn't well, except it, for at night. It doesn't require any sort of fuel air mixture. Um, you know, the, the solar cells are just transmitting that electrical power to the motor. I guess when it comes down, it'll kill somebody someday, but I'm not sure how much, I mean, when you're, when you're at a hundred thousand feet, whether you're buffeted by, I mean, you're sort of above the jet stream, you're above yeah. air currents. So it, it conceivable, I mean, they're able now to stay, stay aloft for 24 hours and more. Yeah, the, the problem must be just keeping battery power through night, right? Unless you're up at the poles and there's no night. Yeah. You're trying to keep, uh, and well, and they're only u- useful if you are, uh, if they're overpopulated areas where they're transmitting, if you're, they're bouncing your cell service or whatever mm. there, nobody wants cell service in the Arctic except for a very few penguins. Well, there aren't penguins in the Arctic. Oh, that's a fair point. Gossamer penguins. Well, you not could, um, them. well, I mean, you could use it for anything a satellite's used for, not just telecoms, right? It's also surveillance, it's weather, it's, uh, I don't know, what else do you use satellites for? Beaming lasers. But see, we don't want to surveil the Arctic. We don't want to know what the weather is over the Arctic. Like, That's a fair point. You, 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 you know, satellites well, sort of park themselves over the, places. the last acceptable prejudice <laughs> is to not care about what's going on in the Arctic. But it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating world. And advances are still being made. What has always confused me is if you can build a bicycle airplane, mm-hmm. why has no startup mass produced bicycle airplanes for commute for just dorks? Uh, I mean, for like go to Templehof. There are so many sportos out there who are fixated on their bicycles. There are all those sportos that are riding around on different mono-wheeled urban, you know. Maybe this is a Seattle phenomenon, but you'll see all <laughs> kinds of dorks. All the people that are that are on segways, all the people that are that are riding skateboards and mountain biking and whatnot. Scooters. Why is there not a like little club of soylent eating tech uh like like physical fitness? types there those guys are all kind of wiry like any any of those guys that are actually athletic in any way have the build for a a cycle plane they're already doing super dumb things why aren't they (laughs) um you know in the hang glider crowd and all of those people the the uh there there are plenty of people that love to fly we will be remembered for our legacy of being the first people to mass produce well we should start the omnibus prize which is the first person uh to make a viable affordable, uh, marketable, just like joyride human powered craft they, that, uh, that can fold up and fit in your car. They don't get a cash prize, but, uh, they get a t-shirt. Yeah. You need to build an airplane that can, uh, that can fly the entirety of a 
ultimate frisbee course <laughs> and deliver you back to your Subaru Outback uninjured and with the plane undamaged. And you will get every single piece of omnibus merch we can we've ever created. This is this is an open offer to the future. And Ken's airplane shoes and my Trilby hat. And that concludes the Gossamer Albatross, entry 540.ps5506, certificate number 20913, in the omnibus. Now, listeners, we certainly hope that you live in an era where the cycle plane has been perfected and social media has been outlawed, but we were in the worst universe, which had mm. no cycle planes and tons of social media. <sighs> It's bad. Come on. So John and I were at John Roderick and at Ken Jennings on Twitter and in John's case, Instagram as well. We were jointly at Omnibus Project. So please, if you have access to those networks in your era, follow our archives there. Uh, if, uh, we're on, if you're a Facebook user, first of all, uh, I'm sorry, it's probably ruining your life and your wife has left you or mm-hmm. your spouse has left you. But True. uh but in your newfound free time, you should be hitting the gym and uh, going to the Futurelings fan page, uh, which is a delightful community of, of those who uh, who are interested in the, the myriad topics that come up on the Omnibus. Agreed. Uh, a similar community has sprung up on Reddit. Uh, I'm not going to endorse right now. I'm I'm holding out. I would like to be. I would like to see an offer. Sweet. Uh, I'll endorse the Reddit Omnibus community of your choice, but you need to. You need to tell me what's in it for Ken. Yeah, what can they do to you? Exactly. What, what can the redditors do? They're not going to. Uh, they're not going to, like, frag you. There should be a redditor prize. Hmm. You know, like, and the award you get if think, you can achieve a certain kind of achievement with your subreddit is to have the Ken, the coveted Ken Jennings endorsement. I think the Reddit prize is um, to log off. <laughs> <laughs> And so few have earned it. It's the rarest of prizes. I should say that the Helios, I forgot to mention this, the Helios... You're not even going to try a segue. You're just going to say, hey, I forgot to mention a thing on my paper. The Helios could conceivably fly on Mars. Really? Even the the thin atmosphere? It doesn't need... It doesn't... uh, That's crazy to me. I know, right? It has such a high aspect ratio that it could just fly uh, powered by solar and not needing any oxygen could like zoom around Mars. If that's not cool, I don't know what is. It, it's, it's remarkable to me that yeah. it can do that in a... Venus is easy. Venus is a thick sure, 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 anyway, sure. I could, I could can, fly a cycle plane on Venus and I haven't been able to touch my toes in, in 10 years. You could row a boat on Venus. Uh, but, you know, where would you go? We, uh, if you want to send us any kind of physical artifact, handwritten note, uh, do it. Blueprint of your new human powered ornithopter. Do it. Um, you can get offline entirely and mm. do that by sending it to PO box five, five, seven, four, four shoreline, Washington, nine, eight, one, five, five. Uh, if you would like to send us email, you can do that at the omnibus project at gmail.com. And, uh, I, I will reply. I am, I'm still months behind on the email. I'm sorry to say, but that's still better than John, who has never actually remembered the password. So, I would I would be on there answering uh, mail all the darn time if I could remember the password. The password is is a password. Why don't you <laughs> just type password? Password. Password. 
And uh, the other thing you could offer us, which we would really appreciate, which would keep the omnibus going, would be your uh, financial support. If you're in oh, a position, I thought you were going to say your credit, your, your credit card information, yeah. but I guess that is what if you're you asking. If you could just give us your <laughs> social security number and the three digits from the back of your credit card and the expiration date. You don't even have to make a donation. We'll take care of it for you. <laughs> no, if you would like to uh, contribute to the ongoing financial well-being of the Omnibus, there is now, you're so lucky, an opportunity for you to do that. <laughs> you can go to patreon.com slash Omnibus Project and uh, ensure that the Omnibus can continue as an independent uh, entity. We pre-appreciate your support, especially if you're in an era where Currency is super hard to come by and inflated, and one of our Earth dollars is like uh, an annual salary to you. You should still donate it. That's the lowest tier. (laughs) We're not not taking dystopia inflation into account. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we honestly have no idea how long our Earth-bound civilization survived. We have yet to fully take to the skies. I can imagine a time in which the Gossamer Jennings and the Gossamer Roderick just float above the earth, subsisting entirely on snowflakes and pixie dust. It's the same plane, but the Gossamer Jennings is in its stocking feet. (laughs) Um, The Gossamer Roderick is a little bit faster, a little bit bit sleeker feathers. Been on the market for a little longer, though. Uh, we hope and fray. Uh, we hope and fray. We are fraying right now that the catastrophe we peer may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. Providence allows. We hope to be back with you soon for another entry.